0: would look with me in Matthew chapter 1 in verse 21 it says she that is Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins let's pray Father, we are given, even in this passage, the purpose for why Jesus came. We recognize that salvation is not just a one-time past event. It is that, where Jesus comes and saves his people from the penalty of sin. But it's also a progressive reality as we are being saved from the power of sin. One day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Father, we pray as we expound on this text, you would use it as a means of grace to do just that. May your people, may the believers that are present, experience this means of grace. May they be progressively sanctified as the word is unfolded. And may those who have never trusted in Christ... Turn from their sin and trust in Him today. We know that that is why the Spirit has come to glorify Christ. May He do that today. And we trust that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The early church celebrated what we call Easter immediately. And this is not surprising because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave was the inauguration of a new world, a new age, the new creation. Of course, this included not only the yearly celebration of Easter, but the weekly celebration of Easter on the Lord's Day. That's why worship was transferred from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday, the Lord's Day. You see that in the New Testament. They begin to celebrate weekly Easter. But they were slower in celebrating Jesus' birth. Uh, the church began to celebrate the birth of Christ somewhere in the 3rd or 4th sim- uh, centuries. It's commonly uh, believed that that Christmas was a takeover of a, of a pagan holiday, uh, the celebration of the winter solstice. But it's just as likely that it was just the other way around, which I tend to believe. In the 11th century, the holiday became known in the terminology that we use, Christmas. In fact, there's a document called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle from the 10 hundreds where we see the name Christmas for the first time. Here's what it says, 1038 AD. An archbishop died and a little after, Ethelric, a bishop in Sussex died and then... Before Christmas, a bishop in Worcestershire died. So you see, this is the first time we have in writing that the name, the word Christmas, is used 1038 AD. Now, without question, Scripture highlights the cross and the resurrection of Jesus when it speaks of his saving accomplishment. But it does point or paint a, a, a much fuller picture than that. For instance, his sinless life is seen as a saving aspect of his ministry. Yes, his cross, where he takes the judgment of God. His resurrection, where he ushers in a new order. His ascension to the right hand of God. His session at the right hand of God. They call it his session, where he rules and he reigns as God's king. Pentecost, where he sends the Spirit. His intercessory ministry, where he ever lives to make intercession for his people. And his return in glory. All of these are seen as saving aspects of his ministry. But not to be missed, none of these would be possible without the incarnation. In other words, the incarnation saves It does not save in and of itself by the mere fact that God becomes man. It doesn't save apart from Jesus' cross and his resurrection. But it's an essential prerequisite for those saving events. And that's why Christmas is a legitimate celebration. Indeed, that's why we've been given our present text... Now, last week, we looked at Jesus' genealogy. We saw that it was critical that the Messiah would be the son of Abraham. It was critical that he would come through the line of Judah and that he would be the son of David. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 16, that his miraculous birth was hinted at, but now Matthew is going to explain that in more detail. And as always, the case when the kingdom of God erupts, it's initially disruptive to us. We see that, in fact, in verse 18. The first thing we see here is Mary's humbling circumstances. Notice only in verse 18 now, the birth of Jesus Christ. Took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting here is, among other things, is that the root, the word birth here, the birth of Jesus, has the same root as the word genealogy in verse 1. The book of the genealogy has the same root. Matthew is certainly making a connection here. And we saw last week that this, this was a declaration of a new age, a new creation. Matthew is picking up the phrase from Genesis 2-4 that speaks of, new, of the creation. And then he's picking up from Genesis 5-1-2 and 2, where it's speaking of Seth being the appointed one by whom the Messiah would come. So you could literally say here that the spirit genesis Jesus the spirit genesis Jesus of course it's not the genesis of course of the preexistent son of god uh, the son of god the preexistent son of god is the eternal son of god but rather it's the genesis of the holy spirit's work to take this son to make him fearfully and wonderfully made as a human. In other words, the Holy Spirit made the preexistent, eternal, second person of the Trinity into a human being, where he is both God and man forevermore. In the words of the Nicene Constantinople Creed, 381 A.D., a creed that is binding for us to espouse this creed means you are orthodox in your understanding of the Trinity and of Christology, for that matter. Hear these words. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who for men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate. By the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. And was made man. Or to put it in Matthew's words. In which the Nicene Constantinople Creed. uh, Was faithful to do. Found to be child. With child from the Holy Spirit. Found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That is Mary. And just as. God's Spirit was present at creation, Genesis 1, verse 2. The same Spirit is present at the inception of the new world, the new creation, Jesus' birth. And this happened after she was betrothed. Uh, Now, betrothal, betrothal was much more serious than our understanding of contemporary engagement. Uh, They weren't living together at this point, and yet a pledge had been made between witnesses. Here's how it worked. When the young man or the young woman, the couple, were very young, the the two fathers of the young boy and the young girl would come together, and they would engage them. That's what they would do. There's probably some credence to that today. So they would engage them. And so this young boy and young girl would be engaged at a very young age. And then when the girl became a teenager, a young teenager, oftentimes, they would be betrothed. And so betrothal was the nearest step to marriage... Now, during the engagement period, you could break off the relationship for various reasons, biblical reasons. But once they entered this betrothal, which lasted about a year, it was binding. Now, during that year, the the, the couple didn't live together, uh, but they were known as husband and wife. In fact, that's why you see here in verse 19, Joseph called Mary's husband. In fact, in verse 19, we see Joseph's plan that comes out of the the news that Mary is with child. Notice with me in verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man... And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so though this marriage has not been consummated, at this point, Mary's body is swelling. And you can only imagine what kind of crushing blow this would have been to Joseph. Virgins, the virgin conception has never happened at this point, in the history of the world. This is not everyday stuff. This would have been devastating to Joseph. Now, based on Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Joseph had a couple of options. He he could have uh, made Mary's condition public. Or he could divorce her quietly. And keep in mind, the Lord... Let Joseph struggle with this for a time. Isn't that interesting? Joseph is going to be privileged to raise the Messiah. He will be the Messiah's earthly father. It's one of a kind privilege. He has this amazing opportunity and responsibility before him. But first came the test. First came the test. When God is preparing you for something, He tests you. And He's in the process of removing the dross. He's in the process of teaching you that He is sufficient. He's drawing you to Himself in a way that you have never known before. Doug Wilson, in one of his books... Says something very insightful. Our faith is tried because God is a goldsmith. You ever thought about that? When the goldsmith plunges gold into the fire, it's not because he has contempt for the gold, he has a crown in mind. It's insightful. And likewise, simultaneously, with Mary's honor, came humiliation. Her pregnancy would begin to show, and she's not married at this point. Yes, she's betrothed, but not married. But note, in verse 20, the angel's surprising announcement. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to note here this language of son of David. Joseph was not a wealthy man. He was not well-to-do in his culture. That was inconsequential. Nor does it appear that he was an eloquent man. He didn't have some public platform of ministry, a mega church. Uh, No, in fact, church tradition has labeled him as quiet Joseph. Have you ever thought about the fact that Joseph never speaks in the Gospels. We have no direct words from Joseph. But again, that was inconsequential. The things that we esteem aren't often on God's radar. Ephemeral, temporal things like human abilities, natural abilities, even spiritual giftings and abilities. Career advancements, notoriety, portfolio. The two most important things about Joseph, first of all, it says he was a just man. Now what does that mean? When the Bible describes a person as just, does that not mean that they're inherently right before God? Righteousness and just are the same idea. It means that he was right before God because... He was a man of faith. And it wasn't just faith in faith. Joseph had faith that God was going to send a Messiah to deliver him, to save him, and to save the people of God. It was faith in the promises of God. This was the most important thing about Joseph. That's how it describes him. He was a just man. And out of that came a just way of living. He could have shamed Mary. He could have lost his temper with her. But he pondered these things because he was a a just man. He did not act rashly. Secondly, it says he was the son of David. Interestingly, or we could just say as a side, the most important thing about you as a believer are those two things. You're not a son of David in the sense that you, you have direct royal blood, but you are in the royal family Because of your union in Jesus. And you are a person of faith. Those are the two most important things about you. But there was something unique about Joseph. He had royal blood. He was from the line of Judah. And it was necessary for Joseph to take Mary as his wife. In order to establish Jesus' legal Davidic lineage. Now notice with me in verse 21 one of the most important verses perhaps in the Bible with regard to communicating why Jesus came. She will bear a son. This is what the angel is communicating to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus was a very popular name in the first century. Loads of fathers named their sons Jesus as a kind of symbolic expression of hope. That God was going to bring deliverance one day. And a highly popular expression of this salvific hope was this... Was the expectation of a Messiah from David's line who would save them from Rome? But the angel draws a less popular but more, eternally more, theme, more important theme. He will come and save his people. From their sins. Salvation from sin. Now what is sin? Well. Every act. Every thought. Every motivation. Every word. That does not correspond to the law of God. Whether it's sins of omission. Things that you neglect. Or sins of commission. That is sins. Sins. But sins, plural, flow out of a heart, of a nature that is fundamentally sinful. So what is sin, singular? Well, sin is when the glory of God is not honored. It's when the greatness of God is not admired. The beauty of God ...is not treasured. The person of God is not loved. And the power of God is not praised. When the wisdom of God is not esteemed. And the holiness of God is not reverenced. And the justice of God is not respected. And the wrath of God is not feared. And the grace of God is not cherished. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. That's sin singular. And out of that flows our sins. So our sins aren't our biggest problem. Our sins are the fruit of our biggest problem. The displacement of God in our hearts... And when you do not have a biblical view of sin, you may get a vague, kind of misty, hazy kind of Christianity light. So there's something about Jesus in your understanding, something about grace, but not the kind that will exercise rule over your everyday life. Not the kind that will give you peace and joy on your deathbed. When you don't have a biblical view of sin, you will not set your face towards heaven and live like a pilgrim. When you don't have a biblical view of sin, you will not love God. You will not love Christ. You will not love his gospel. But he has come to Save us from our sin. You see, our greatest evil is our guilt, our pollution, our depravity, the penalty on our sin. That's what it means to be saved from our sins, to be saved from these things, and to be saved for the greatest good God Himself. We are saved from the wrath of God for God. That's salvation. Let's remember that at Christmas. The incarnation is God's opening offensive in his war on our sins. God's opening offensive in his war on our sins. One of the reasons why so many families have high drama at Christmas time. All right? Maybe you're the exception. But one of the reasons many families have high drama at Christmas time is that most people unwittingly expect sentimentalism to fix everything in a magical way. So somehow every year we think the Scrooges and the Grinches in our lives, in our families, and in our, our own hearts... Will be transformed by apple cider and Nat King Cole on the radio are walking in a winter wonderland. But imagine what happens when you gather a group of sinners who have these unrealistic exaggerated expectations that flow out of sentimentalism. So this Christmas, remember that chestnuts roasting on an open fire, yuletide carols being sung by a choir and a turkey and some mistletoe will not fix your family. It will not remove the problem. It just temporarily masks the problem. Indeed, the hanging of lights only makes a living room full of sin that much sadder. But therein lies the glory of Christmas. Therein lies the glory of... Of the gospel. He came to save his people from their sins. And none of these glorious promises were unexpected. I want you to note in verse 22, as the angel proceeds, or as it speaks to what the angel has said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Five times in the first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew explains what's happening by reference to the Old Testament. And and what does that tell us? That tells us that the story of the Old Testament is not arbitrary. It's going somewhere. And its destination is centered on a person. Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's why Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 1. That all the promises of God. All the promises of God. Are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now the name Jesus specifies what he will do. We saw this last week. You shall... Call him, you shall name him Jesus, because Jesus is the Greek name for the Lord is salvation. And the name Emmanuel specifies who he is. He is God with us. Fully God, fully man. Not 50% God, not 50% man. Fully God, fully man. Not in two persons. Fully God, fully man, in one person. And to prepare us for Emmanuel, Isaiah predicted this. Isaiah prophesied this, and he sent a prototype in Isaiah 7. and Matthew picks that up. Now what's happening in Matthew 7, or Isaiah 7? King Ahaz was the king of Judah. You know at this point, uh, Israel had been divided, the southern kingdom of Judah, and then the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes. And the two tribes of Judah. And Ahaz has two problems. External problems. He has some internal problems. But his two external problems are Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Rezin and Pekah were the two kings of the respective countries. And so God says through Isaiah to ask for a sign. To confirm that he will take care of these two nemesis, but Ahaz rejects the sign. Why? Because he's not trusting in Yahweh; he's trusting in Assyria. And then comes that prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen, that this virgin will conceive. Now, the the Hebrew word for virgin there can mean, it's ambiguous because it can mean a young maiden of marrying age. It can also mean a virgin. And the reason I think it's ambiguous in Isaiah 7 is because it has this initial fulfillment, which would have been assigned to Ahaz, and it has an ultimate fulfillment. That's how much prophecy works. That's how typology often works. For instance, the son of David will build the temple. Initial fulfillment is Solomon. The ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. And so we have this initial and ultimate fulfillment. And so I believe, and there's been a lot of ink spilled on this, and I've, so I'm not dogmatic here, I believe the initial fulfillment is Isaiah's son. Maher, Halal Hashbaz. I believe is his name. So God gives this king, Ahaz, a sign, but he rejects it. And before this child is old enough to know right from wrong... God destroys those two kings as he said he would. But after that happens, Assyria comes against Ahaz. God had offered Ahaz deliverance. Ahaz had trusted, rather than God, in an earthly solution. And so God uses this earthly solution to bring judgment on Ahaz. After that, Ahaz knows that, he, that God is Emmanuel. He will be present, in this case, to bring judgment. And so what is the Emmanuel principle for us? It's this, that God offers to be present to save us. God offers to be present to bless us, to bless our homes, to bless our marriages, To bless our parenting. But if we refuse, he will still be present, but in a manner that will bring judgment or, for the Christian, great discipline. Here in Matthew, the blessed side of the Emmanuel principle is seen. He will send his son to save us from our sins. Now, some people respond to the birth of Jesus with great indifference. Much like Ahaz was indifferent to the sign promised by God, they may think of the birth of Jesus as a great family tradition. Christmas being a, a wonderful family tradition whereby we have built all of these wonderful memories, we have all of these great pictures, But that kind of thinking tragically misses the point. Emmanuel is not a religious tradition. He is God's answer to God's wrath on sin. And that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world, man is ascending to God. That's just another expression of the Tower of Babel. Christianity, and what Christmas represents is God descending to man. So Christmas means that God is with us in Jesus. If we repent of our sins, turn from our sins, and trust in him, he is with us to save. If we reject that, he is still Emmanuel. He is still with us. But he is with us to judge. You can't get away from the reality of Emmanuel. And now that the angel had finished, I want you to note Joseph's obedience. Verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph models the capacity for radical obedience. That flows from the knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's remarkable obedience. When you consider what he would have naturally believed and felt about Mary and what everyone else around them would have believed. But that shows you what happens when your heart has been stirred by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But more importantly than Joseph's obedience here is the act of the triune God himself. The divinely sent king Who is conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. This is a very Trinitarian text. And this act of the triune God is the great act of the ages. An act intended to fix the broken things. An act intended to fix your own heart an act intended to fix your marriage an act intended to fix your capacity to get along with your your siblings and honor your parents and to be that light that he has called you to with your neighbor god with us god for us isn't that beautiful God with us because God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, as we close, what difference should this passage make as we approach 2019? It's remarkable that it's 2019. just reminds us that life is a vapor. I remember being worried about Y2K. That was like two years ago. And now it's 2019. What difference does this make? First of all, the virgin conception is a sign of God's judgment on humankind. It's also a sign of God's salvation of his people. We need a savior and we can't produce one. That's why all the matriarchs, by the way, were barren. The Savior is coming through that line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All of their wives are barren. Because the seed of the woman is coming through that line. And we can't produce what we need. But God, by the Spirit... In Jesus Christ has. But let's remember this qualification as we celebrate Christmas. This is a wonderful qualification from Philip Hughes. In his book, The The True Image. Bethlehem is not the whole story. The birth that took place there was not an end in itself. But a means to an end. The end to which Bethlehem was a means was Calvary. And unless Bethlehem is seen in direct relationship to Calvary, its true purpose and significance are missed. The cradle was the start of the road that led to the cross. And the purpose of Christ's coming was achieved not in the cradle, but in the cross. And here is ultimately the reason for the season. Yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. But have you ever seen this bumper sticker? The cross is the reason. For the season. Our representative. Priest king. Came as our substitute. He lived in our place. And then he died. In our place. Taking our blame. Taking our shame. Think about this. The first Adam said. It was not. Don't blame me. Blame my wife. The last Adam came and said. Don't blame my bride. Blame me. And when you experience that costly kind of love, it will show itself. It will go public. It will go public in your closest of human relationships. You will begin to exercise that costly kind of love. Mercy, grace, compassion. Gratitude will be your calling card when that reality is taken hold in your heart. Because you know you deserve crucifixion and you're not getting it. Because you've been forgiven when you were an object of wrath. You forgive 70 times 7. 24-7. You have been transferred from an object of Wrath. To an object of shalom, of peace. Because our God in Christ is with us and for us, we have new power to obey Him, to love Him, as expressed how we love each other, how we love the people of God, how we love our husband, how we love our spouse, our wives. Our children, our parents, the neighbor that never cuts his grass. And so as we approach 2019, what will this notion, this glorious truth of God with us, God for us, how will it express itself in your new obedience? Which is the evidence of conversion. In family worship. How will it express itself in family worship, the spiritual disciplines, greater commitments to the local church? You're giving time, talents, treasures, and maybe a new conversion where you recognize I have never trusted in Christ. I've been to church all my life, but right now God with us, Emmanuel is bad news for me. Because I've never trusted in him. He's outside of me. I need to be united to him. So maybe God with us, God for us, might compel you to repent of your sins. And trust in Emmanuel who came to save you from your sins. Let's pray.